the congregation's role in selecting church leaders. Repeating what uh, has been already said, on or before April 2nd, 2023, Lord willing and church agreeing, we anticipate that God will call a brother from this congregation to serve as a pastor at Grace Point Church to assist in the preaching and the pastoral ministry as the congregation continues to grow and as I personally continue to age and diminish in these capacities of preaching and, and uh, pastoral care. So um, on uh, Friday evening, March 31st, Grace Point Church will ask the congregation, following the biblical biblical pattern of Acts 6, 2 and 3, to look out among you someone of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. And so in this process, Grace Point Church will ask each member to submit the name of a brother who in their discernment or in your discernment would be qualified to be appointed to serve the church as a pastor. So questions, why does this duty fall to the congregation and how should you and I think about and prepare to exercise this high responsibility in the church? So the sermon this morning, at least part of it kind of covers uh, what I'll call the what and the why and the how. The pastoral team wants the congregation to understand what, why, and how we strive to follow the New Testament pattern of selecting church leaders so we can reasonably expect the prosperous Acts 6 outcome where the text says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So that, that phrase, the word of God continued to increase, doesn't mean that they, they were kept on adding to the scripture. It means that the message of the church continued to spread from Jerusalem and on out to other parts of uh, Judea and Samaria and uh, uh, eventually to the uttermost uh, parts of the, of the earth. So as Sean mentioned, this sermon is one of uh, a three-part series. Uh, the first one is on becoming godly leaders, and then there's also a sermon on the biblical qualities for church leadership. I think it has a different title, but that's what it will, will cover, the congregation's preparation for an ordination. But it's covering the, the, the qualifications for church leadership, and then Third, the congregation's role in selecting church leaders. So in uh, Becoming Godly Leaders, the sermon that Sean preached last week, this sermon focuses on the nature of the work he will be called to leadership. The sermon that Randy will be preaching in two weeks focuses on the nature of the man called to do this work. And the sermon today is on the nature of the process to call someone to this work. So what we want to do is kind of answer the question, well, what is my role and responsibility in the spiritual work of ordaining a church leader? And yes, it is a spiritual work. So I want to say that often when we think about uh, ordination messages or preparation for an ordination, the focus is kind of on, well, who is this? Who's actually knowingly or unknowingly the person that we're addressing? This morning, I am addressing all of you, all those that will be 
will be casting a vote. You are the ones that I am looking at or looking to and uh, and uh, addressing as you undertake the spiritual work of calling a brother to help lead your congregation. So I want to uh, begin this morning by introducing a phrase that we generally have not used here at Grace Point, or I think even at Cross Point earlier, we didn't use this phraseology, elder-led congregationalism. So Grace Point practices a congregational form of church government. So if you're asking, well, okay, so so what is that? Well, there are different kinds of church governments. There are actually three major kinds. One of them is called the Episcopal. It comes from the Greek word episkopos, or that's translated into English, bishop and uh, or overseer. And uh, it generally is the idea that church leadership is through a bishop. Probably it's fair to say the Roman Catholic Church has advanced this Episcopal you know, church leadership model to its highest form with a pope that, in their estimation, presides over the whole church around the globe. And uh, so that, that's the one. Then the, there's the second one that is uh, called the Presbyterian, or it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, presbyter, it's translated, and it is more the idea that there is a group not just a single person, but a group. But again, it, there's kind of a hierarchy, and there's a group that makes, a group of presbyters that makes the decisions that are then handed down to the church. Whereas, by contrast, Grace Point Church is a congregational church where the, we're a, an autonomous local church body. And so the responsibility uh, lies with all the members. All members share joint responsibility for its health, its preaching, and its membership, so all participate in church governance. So if this sounds to you like democratic chaos, then uh, there is actually more to the story. The New Testament also teaches that elders, or and, and when I use the word elders, we could also use the word pastors, shepherds, there are bishops, but the, that the term that's generally used is, is elders of the church are responsible for church governance. So how do these two contradictory roles fit together? So let, let's first let me uh, respond to this, this uh, question of the elders and, how, and what they are called to do. In the New Testament, as we read through the New Testament epistles, the, there is a special group of people and by the way, I am now, you know, 67 years old and I'm kind of like, like edging toward the door so I can like say these things and, uh, that maybe the other pastors would be a little hesitant to say. But, uh, there is a group that is specifically called by God and is, and by definition in the scripture, they are charged with ruling over the congregation. And so now that's obviously with love and with care and with compassion and not heavy-handed. The scripture has a whole array of, of, uh, of, uh, like instruction for elders how not to be and how to be. But, uh, but it is, however, a reality. So there's this, there's almost like this tension between a, a congregational church government. And by the way, the biblical basis for congregational church government would come from like in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18, those 
those uh, passages about the keys of the kingdom and and in Matthew 18 if if a brother offends you know then you know bring it to the church and 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 in in 1 Corinthians we learn that that it's actually the duty of the church to like guard the name of Christ so if you think about you know the did Jesus taught that that uh, when you assemble in my name. There's significance in that, in that it's a we, we assemble in his name. We call upon his name. We are representing him. How does Jesus guard his name so that he is represented properly? It's through the, it's through the, the care that we exercise together as brothers and sisters. And if there is someone who and and this is what the scripture says is like after a after a, a a series of you know first go to him personally and then if he doesn't hear you take two or three others with him ultimately there comes a time when the church is called upon to say well you are no longer because of your lack of repentance and your obvious you know a sin then you cannot represent the name of the name of Christ properly it has nothing to do with then we want nothing to do with you now the the, the text says that consider him as a gentile which would mean like not as a brother uh, but it has to do with guarding the name of Christ because it's like how does uh, like I think it was John that wrote that that uh, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for each other and the manner in which we treat each other and who we are. It represents who Christ is in the church. And so there's this duty of the brotherhood to guard the name of Christ. And so it's in this sense that there's a uh, that we are congregational. We don't look to someone else from on high to come do this kind of work among us. It's incumbent upon us uh, to do it uh, ourselves. Uh, I want to read in First uh, Peter 4, kind of like the job description. So how are these elders supposed to lead the church? Well, here's the job description. First uh, Peter, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 5, uh, beginning to read in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the... Ah, that's verse 5. This is kind of like the, the job description of the pastors and and shepherds. A good summary. But notice in this passage all of the authority and the responsibility words. Shepherd, exercise oversight, serve as examples. Elders, pastors have a very real authority and responsibility in and to the congregation which they are called by God to serve. The author of Hebrews makes the same point, but kind of from the opposite perspective. Here, Peter is writing and addressing the elders. The writer to the Hebrews addresses the members and and says in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So, according to the New Testament, elders must lead the congregation. But how exactly? Well, there there would be many ways. I'm going to point out three of them, and I think these are three primary ways in which the elders lead the congregation. And I'm pointing them out because they speak to this question of how do these two contradictory roles fit together? A primary role is to teach. 
to teach the Bible. In the, in the list of uh, instructions that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, recorded in 1 Timothy, this is in chapter 3, he specifically says of the elders that they must be able to teach. Now, it, this doesn't mean that, now it's not then, then he follows with instructions regarding deacons, and it's not mentioned for deacons. Neither is it mentioned as a qualification for church membership. Now, it is a blessing when deacons and other church members are able to teach, but it's actually a, a necessity for, or like, or a qualification for an elder or a pastor or a teacher that he is able to teach. Then also, uh, uh, another role is to be an example. Maybe more on that later if there's time. And then uh, finally, uh, the third thing I want to point out is that elders must give oversight or, or rule, obviously, with love and care. So how do these two, like, like you might say, no, no, wait a minute. On the one hand, the elders are called to govern, provide church governance, but you're saying that the church is called to guide, to give church governance. How do these two fit together? And I'll... Uh, uh, I'll suggest that the the primary verse here that we that sheds light on it is in in uh, Ephesians four eleven and twelve, where God gave to the church apostles and and uh, prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. So there's this sense, and I'll, I'll put it this way: elders don't usurp the congregation's authority. Elders equip the congregation to exercise its authority rightly. And so there's this, uh, this how this these these two ideas kind of work in tandem, and all this to say, like, why am I saying all this? It's to get to this point that selecting church leaders is one of the key ways that a congregation exercises its authority and responsibility in church governance. Selecting a leader is one of the key ways that a congregation helps to govern, you know, their their congregation. All right, so um, I want to transition here to. How did God identify leaders for his people in the Bible? Uh, you could think of Abraham, and we could think of Moses, but we won't go down those paths other than just to note that in the Old Testament kingdom age, the Spirit would come upon prophets. Now, this next part of the sermon, some of you have heard me uh, give this before, it was actually, if you think, well, see, when was this? It was one year and one week ago. This congregation was sitting at the same place that we are today, just planning for an ordination. So think about how that was when, when Israel needed a king to replace Saul and Samuel was sent by God to uh, anoint David. So, Imagine if God sent a modern-day Samuel to anoint Grace Point's next pastor. And you know how the that scenario played out. Uh, there was a lineup of all the candidates, and of course David was still out with the sheep, and so he was missing. But so suppose we had a, I don't know who, who the, uh, a Samuel would be, maybe a, a, a venerable bishop from somewhere, <laughs> comes and he would say, okay, brothers, let's just like line, line up here in front of the congr- of the pulpit. And then when the Spirit tells me which one it is, of you it is, then I'll let you know. That's how it worked then. So, so why, do, so, so what changed? God doesn't send Samuel because something changed. 
But what, what is it that changed? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, that the Spirit of, don't, don't you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And uh, so, do you not know, the, the point is, do you not know that you are God's temple? The Spirit of God dwells in you. So, within the congregation, the Spirit of God is now dwelling in each of our hearts individually. That was not the case in Israel. The Spirit of God would just fall upon a specific person for a specific purpose. Now He dwells within the church in all of our hearts. And so in 2023, at Grace Point Church in Dover, Ohio, God works through His people instead of His prophets to identify church leaders. Remember I said this is a spiritual work that we are undertaking. Now, here's a word of caution. Even Samuel fell prey to looking on the outward appearance. We must rise above our natural inclination to look upon the outward appearance as we identify a pastor for our church. We must seek to exercise spiritual discernment regarding a man's inner qualities. When Brother Randy preaches uh, to us in the uh, in the message to come regarding qualifications, you will notice that while there are some outward you know things that are listed that are of importance, he must be uh, like lead a respectable life and and uh, be uh, respected by those without the church and so on. Most of those qualifications speak to the inner life and the inner man. It's a spiritual work to call a church leader because it requires discernment on the part of those who are bringing nominations to look beyond the outward appearance and to see the fruit that flows from a man's heart. It's his inner qualities that uh, we must be discerning. So how did the apostolic church identify new leaders. I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to build here a biblical basis for what I've just said, that there was a big shift from the way God identified leaders in the Old Testament and how it was done in the apostolic church in the New Testament. We read of three ways. One of them is by lot. This is in Acts, Acts 1. So after Jesus' ascension, a replacement was chosen for Judas, but it was not just a random choice. It there was a uh, a qualification process where you had in that case you had to have been with the disciples from the beginning and have like seen and experienced uh, everything that that they chose. So as we know, the use of the lot has been like uh, is a standard practice in the Amish church and conservative Mennonite churches. So there is this, this is one way that we read that, that uh, uh, leaders were selected in the, uh, in the apostolic, uh, actually it was it like predated the church. So let, let me say, that maybe this is the time to, to point this out. Let me go back again just to uh, about the lot and point out that, that this event fell in between the Old Testament era, Jesus had come, he had died, but it was prior to Pentecost. So it's kind of like in an in-between period. And in this in-between period, the disciples, led by Peter, kind of reverted back to the Urim and Thummim method of, of uh, you know, asserting, ascertaining what is God's will. Uh, and that once Pentecost had come, and the Spirit dwelt within the congregation. We don't read of the use of the lot anymore. And this is why, as a congregation, we are moving away from 
the use of the lot to weight our decisions on the voice of the congregation instead by a multiple series of voting, a series of, of multiple votes if need be. Okay, and then two, uh, another way is by congregational selection. This is in Acts 6, where look ye out among you is what the, uh, uh, deci- the apostles said to the, to, it says they gathered all the disciples together. And then they said, look out among you. So it, and then, so choose these men whom we may appoint. So it appears as though they asked the congregation to make selections and then they appoint it. Then there's a third method that we read about in Acts 14, verse 23. This is when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were retracing their steps on the first missionary journey. They were going back to the churches that they had established. I'm not sure how much, how long before that, but it couldn't have been more than months at the most. They uh, retraced their steps, and the text says that they appointed elders in every city. It does not say how the process was. It does not give instructions to, this is how you should do it. It just says that they appointed elders in every city, so it appears as though it is also a valid way for existing church leaders to appoint leadership for new churches. Now, of, of these three methods, different churches use use all all of these, and all of them say, "Well, we're we're using the biblical pattern." Okay, uh, and so the the answer, and like, can that be right? Well, it appears that there is uh, there is some room for discernment as to which method a congregation will use, and so as a congregation, we discern the method that we will use based on these uh, uh, these three biblical patterns. Some noteworthy points. One, in all of the Acts texts, God always worked through the church and or existing church leaders, usually founders or church planters. Two, in none of these biblical patterns did an individual unilaterally declare himself called by God to church leadership. Three, since the text does not prescribe one specific way of identifying church leaders, it leaves some room for discernment. Local churches must agree on a process and then follow it in unity. And four, perhaps the lesson is that God is not as concerned about the method of selecting church leaders as he is about their qualifications, since these are much more specific. Cyprian, writing regarding ordination in about 250 A.D. in Carthage, Africa, which would have been like on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, so it shows that there would have been widespread Christian practice. He said, for a proper ordination, all the neighboring overseers and bishops throughout the province should assemble with the congregation. So apparently in Carthage, Africa, at the time in church history, that time in church history, the congregation did the selection followed by ordination by existing church leaders in the home church and surrounding area. So why is the selection process important? Like why do we have a sermon about this? Well, we must have absolute confidence that this is the work of God. And Part of it is because of, I'll also add, the spiraling need for pastoral care in the postmodern church is a solemn responsibility to provide church care. And here I'm going to repeat something that I've said before, but I think it, it bears repeating. When, uh, when my dad was my age and younger, if, you know, when you, you went to church and uh, the ministers preached when it was their turn, and if the deacon showed up on your porch 
during the week there was trouble, and it was for you. Today, if the deacon or pastor does not show up on the porch during the week, there's trouble. But it's for him, because he's obviously not caring enough. He's out of touch with the congregation. He doesn't know what's going on in their, their people's lives. And what I'm trying to say is that there has been over time, and I don't know for sure what this is. I have some ideas, but I don't want to spend time now going into it. What this is that has caused this spiraling need for pastoral care among our people. But, and, and maybe you can say, well, back in those days, you know, people were just told, buckle up, you know, and, uh, and, uh, get in line. And, uh, they did. And there was not a, a deep sense of, but how's this hurting me? And so on. There's, it just seems like there was a different day. But all this to say that, that the, the, the need for pastoral care is, is real and it's growing among our churches. We must select with care for the spiritual health of the church. Okay, now, there are some strengths and there are some weaknesses to the process that we use. And I want, and this was part of the assignment of this message is to cover those strengths and weaknesses. So I want to just hit on, uh, on these and, and you already kind of know them, but, but, uh, one of the weaknesses is lack of formal training, which is why it's so important that I would say, uh, not to take any words from Randy's sermon to come, but if I think about what is, uh, like qualifications for church leadership, one of the primary needs is that it has to be a brother who is a man of the book, a man who is immersed in the word, because from the immersion into God's word flows truth that feeds the souls in the congregation, more so than formal training, though Formal training can be very helpful. Alistair Begg says something to this, uh, to this effect. He's a, uh, a radio preacher that, that I hear from time to time. And he says that truth that does not dwell with power within you cannot flow with power through you. So this, so as you think about, uh, pastors, immersion in God's word will overcome the lack of formal training, but it still is an, an ongoing significant weakness. The corresponding strength is pastoral apprenticing, where we believe in and practice in a, like a, a, in plural ministry, a, you know, multiple pastors. And so at any stage in our, if you think about uh, in, in our congregation, I should know this, Sean, but let me ask, uh, see, what is your age? How young are you? Hanging on to 49. Okay. And, uh, brother Randy, uh, you haven't made it to uh, 30 yet, okay? And, and I'm 67. So if you think about that range, you know, there's like the, the work of the church is larger than any single man. There's this ongoing overlap and, and so, and there's a strength and, and the lack of formal training can be overcome by pastoral apprenticing where a team of pastors works alongside each other and there's a gradual transition from, from one to the other. Then the, the, the lack of letters. So here, let me tell you a little story. Some years ago, I was, uh, uh, I was in a, in California for training related to the work that I uh, do for uh, nonprofit foundations. And uh, so this was a gathering of churchmen and mission administrators and college administrators, or like not, not as much administrators as college uh, people working in the development side, which means raising money. Uh, so, so this was quite the August company 
of uh, distinguished, highly trained men. And Gary Miller, German Baptist Gary Miller from Idaho, and I were two Anabaptists that were in this group. And so the first week we spent together, we uh, uh, everyone introduced themselves, and all of them were like, I went to this college, and I graduated from this seminary, and he had this kind of degree, and they had these letters behind their names. And, uh, and so by the time that this like came around the circle, we were feeling like pretty backwoodsy Anabaptists. And uh, so uh, we explained our process of calling brothers from the laity. And uh, I found it interesting. There, by the way, there was one, uh, uh, there was one brother in, in particular that uh, uh, Gary and I kind of like, like secretly, just among ourselves, we called him Alphabet. Kind of like, uh, like uh, see, the, the, the pineapple man. What was his name? Uh, you know, the pineapple story. Uh, Otto Koenig. Otto Koenig had this story about how that there was a guy who had so many letters behind his name, they called him Alphabet. Well, this was a man who was in his mid-40s, and he had multiple master's degrees, and he was still in, a, in class. Well, why are you taking this class? He said, I just love learning. And so he just like kept on learning, and which is, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that that uh, uh, yeah, we called him Alphabet, and but it, but it was interesting that in the course of our time together, not everyone, but many of these men came to Gary and I to validate and express appreciation for the method in which we call men from the congregation. And as they said, and and, and this is, and I'll one of them said this: when you call someone to be your pastor. Your the strength is that you already know them because you live with them. You interact with them. They're part of your congregation. And and uh, when we called and he said we just recently did in our little there was a small church that was next to the associated with the university where he was was working. And he said we called a pastor and we had to go compl- we had depended entirely upon the letters behind his name because we did not know him at all and it was disastrous and we're still we've we've we still haven't overcome that and and so when i when i hear that that so okay you kind of have uh, like you 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 lack formal training but you do know each other so there's a real strength in that so uh so so like for, for example what if if the pastoral team came to you and said uh congregation we're going to uh, call somebody to be a pastor from uh, Berea Fellowship in Napanee, Indiana. You would say, well, but we don't know them. Well, that's the idea. So there's strength and there's a weakness. Well, what are the... and and the So there's a strength in picking out from among you. One of the weaknesses is lack of time. And I won't go into... I, I started a file some time ago on uh, the unmuzzled ox. I always get kind of get a... a I think it's a little ironic that... Uh, Pastors are like compared to oxen, you know that that uh, you know like they like like an ox deserves some food from the threshing he's done. Pastors deserve some support, and 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 I'm not making any point here that the church is already doing that. Thank you. Uh, but there were Paul was a tent maker, and and um, Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. But there is a so so there is this biblical pattern for church leaders who work to support themselves. That's not un. Biblical. There is a pattern for that. 
but it does have, when we choose from among ourselves, there is that offsetting weakness that there's a lack of time often. But uh, that can be overcome by the plural ministry team. And then uh, I, I, I just added here, first among equals. This is actually, the first among equals is the phrase we use to define the role of the lead pastor. Because in our church polity or our governance, we recognize like the term bishop, elder, pastor, shepherd, to be synonymous. They all mean the same thing. And then deacon is a different office, somewhat overlapping, but focuses on benevolence rather than on teaching. Uh, so, but there does need to be leadership. Well, how does this work then without like ordaining someone to a higher office? Because we're all equals, there is a, a, we appoint a first among equals. And so the lead pastor in our, is our lead pastorship is actually a, uh, a term that uh, comes up for reappointment, but uh, he functions as a first among equals. Some closing thoughts, some questions. Okay, Sean already covered this one. Does any candidate who is nominated have to accept the nomination? Sean just gave you that instruction. If I nominate a brother who is not ordained, does that mean I lack spiritual discernment? And the answer there is no. No, not, not at all. Just the, oh, yeah, just the way Joseph called Barsabas was as qualified as Matthias in Acts 1. He was not, uh, he, he was not chosen and Matthias was. It does not mean that you lack spiritual discernment if the brother you vote for is not, uh, ordained. Remember, it is the congregation's sacred responsibility and solemn duty to nominate qualified candidates above reproach in his inner life, in his home life, in his church life, in his community life, which basically summarizes those qualifications. So in summary, in the Old Testament kingdom age, the Spirit came upon prophets. In the New Testament church age, the Spirit dwells in the church. The carnal error of looking only on a man's outward appearance can be a fatal flaw. So exercise spiritual discernment as to a man's inner qualities. Build upon the strength and shore up the weaknesses of our way. And I'll close with this. It is a truism, no chapter or verse, just the sum total of the scriptural record, that the spiritual condition of the congregation determines to what extent the Holy Spirit can lead and bless a congregation with church leaders that will prosper them. Like, can't, don't ask me what, well, where's the verse for that? But just like the sum total of the spiritual condition of all of us together impact the spiritual work of calling a pastor or church leader.